Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, Can I get a countdown? Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 103. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, I just want to remind you about a few things. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media in various places. You can like me on Facebook. Just go on out and look for Brian McClanahan. You can follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go look for Brian McClanahan. Also, if you uh, do like... Uh, the Brian McClanahan Show, and you wish to support it, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, and you can throw a few pennies my way. Everything does help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. If you go to brianmcclanahan.com and you give me an email address, I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audio book read by yours truly of the same title, Forgotten Founders. So go on out and do that. And just want to remind you about the promotions for the forthcoming How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. They will end on September 18th. So we've got just about a month left. But you can go to BlameHamilton.com and you can send me an email with a screenshot of your purchase of, or pre-order I should say, of How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America from wherever you want to buy it. And if you purchase one, I will send you the ebook, the Jeffersonian Solution. Jeffersonian Solution, excuse me. And if you purchase two or more, I will not only send you that ebook, I will also send you a six lecture course on Alexander Hamilton. So go on out to blamehamilton.com and see all the details and also pre-order the book. And everyone who pre-orders at least one book will be registered for a contest, a giveaway for a master level subscription to Liberty Classroom. And if you already are a master level member at Liberty Classroom and you win the grand prize, you'll get an Amazon gift card. So it's a win-win no matter what. You get the book, you get a free ebook, you get a six lecture course if you order two or more. You can't beat that deal. So go on out to blamehamilton.com and get all the details and go ahead and get into the contest. Okay, so today uh, I want to talk about um, something that's a little more uh, cerebral, but it's it's, I think, at the heart of what's happening in America right now. Um, and I think it's the way that we look at the world for, for many people. And I, and, and I know that the people that generally listen to this podcast uh, are what you would call a paleo-libertarian, a right-libertarian, or maybe a paleo-conservative. Uh, you're not a neoconservative. 
You're, you're probably not a leftist. Maybe you do listen to this podcast and you are a leftist. Uh, you're probably not a left libertarian uh, because uh, the left libertarians and those on the left tend to have a lot in common. Uh, and I think that's in one particular um, way that they see things. And it's, it's through a, 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 I should say, political things. It's through a lens called emotivism. Now, if you don't know what emotivism is, um, it's a way of thinking about the world with an emotional response. Now, sometimes those on the right are called reactionaries. They react to uh, what the left is doing, and they respond with whatever uh, program or idea they think will stop what the left is doing. It's simply just a knee-jerk reaction to everything. And I, I think that's unfair. But when you look at some of the issues that we find so important today, some of the things that are occupying our political space. So a lot, and particularly when you get into social issues, uh, not necessarily taxes or things of that nature. And so, you know, when you look at how people think, you know, these are the issues of the day, uh, we've seen recently that there is a definite uptick in how people look at social issues. Okay, so you take all the things that are going on and you look at them as social issues. There's an emotional response to these things, whether it's um, you know southern symbols. There's an emotional response, in some ways on both sides. But I think that the, that the side that's looking to keep them there, particularly not the kooks, but the ones who want to keep them there for real, concrete, tangible reasons, are not reacting emotionally to the situation. They're reacting in a logical way. A cerebral way and I think that's part of the problem in connecting with people and why they think these things should stay or take issues that are uh, you know um, social issues like abortion or something of that nature uh, there is an emotional response in both ways to this uh, and oftentimes it's hard to connect because of that emotional response or take issues like uh, you know the uh, feminism or things of that nature. Oftentimes, it's an, it's an emotional response or racism. There's an emotional response to that. Uh, there was a, a book entitled After Virtue by a philosophy professor named McIntyre, um, and he gets into this idea of emotivism and how emot emotional responses have, have now taken over the political arena. And I remember when I was an undergraduate, I actually had a professor. She was a far-left professor, uh, and but she was very in tune to this, and she used to tell people, particularly those who thought like her, don't tell me how you feel, tell me how you think, because she was she was very under she understood very well that when you say I feel these things are wrong, uh, I feel these things, I this is how I feel. That's not that's not really an intellectual activity. You're you're emoting. And so emoting is not, does, should not drive how you view the world. Uh, you know, we don't live, and I, I know we have this little kids movie, the emoji movie. We don't, we don't emote. That's not how we should be responding to political questions. They should be logical and rational responses to things. Unfortunately, as you expand suffrage and you expand the, the power of government and what government can do, this is where you get into demagoguery, and of course demagogues are going to try to get you to emote to vote a particular way. There's an existential threat to you here, and uh, this is 
they're going to try to drive you into an emotional response. You see this with very radical ideologies, whether it's fascism, communism. These are, these are ideologies that, that really get you into an emotional response to things, not a cerebral response, which is why it's, they're so powerful. Your ideologies, your isms, oftentimes get you to emote. And so this is why when you look at a paleo-libertarian or a paleo-conservative, it's hard for us to connect the dots and say, okay, well, what we're really trying to do here is defend X, Y, and Z because we're in a much more cerebral position. We're not asking people to emote. Now, you could say, well, I mean, defending tradition, which is what I'm going to get into today, defending tradition is an emotional response. You're afraid that someone is going to take those things away from you, so you're emoting and you're reacting. Well, in some ways that's true, and I, I think that, uh, you know, you do react to something. But I kind of uh, I think that, um, or I do think that, uh, you know, when, when uh, G.K. Chesterton came up with his Chesterton's Fence, the idea that when you buy a house, you buy a property, and you look outside and you see there's a fence there, you don't just go rip up the fence because it's there. You try to figure out, well, why is there a fence on my property? What does that fence have to do with this home or this particular property? Why does somebody erect that fence? And so you start asking questions. And you start digging into why that fence is there. Maybe you have obnoxious neighbors. Maybe you have a neighbor that has a dog that always wants to come and uh, you know, do his business in your yard. So you want to have a fence to keep that dog out. Or maybe you just have bad neighbors and you don't want them walking your property. Maybe you just don't want people walking through your property. There's all kinds of reasons why you might have a fence. You know, the old thing, good fences make good neighbors. There's all kinds of reasons why you might have a fence. But you don't just go willy-nilly tear out the fence. That's essentially what an emotional response would be. I don't like that fence. Let me rip it out. You don't even ask the question then, is the fence valuable and usable? And why did people in the past put the fence there? So when people talk about tearing down tradition, it's an emotional response to something, and you have to wonder why that something is there. And of course, you can make up an excuse. Well, this fence was there for nefarious reasons. It's there to show my supremacy against my neighbors. The person who had it before, so I'm just going to tear that fence out because it shows that I am more, I am in a higher position than them. And I think that's problematic because you're making things up. You don't actually get to the heart of the issue and why that fence, why these traditions are there. And so when you start talking about tradition, this is a much more cerebral thing to defend. It's harder to defend. But for those who have it, there, you need to, to figure out a way to do it eloquently. And so many people with isms, ideologies, cannot do it eloquently. And oftentimes they do it destructively. And that is a real problem in American society. Because if you destroy, if you do things destructively, and you don't do it cerebrally, uh, then I think you do run into a situation where you're just going to be painted in a particular way. And that's that. So this McIntyre book, you know, look, what he wanted to do was return to a much more Aristotelian society. And uh, my friend Donald Livingston will tell you, well, there's, there's two, essentially two types of society. There's, there's Aristotelian and Hobbesian. And the Hobbesians just want to put a boot on your throat. 
and all power is coercion and everything has to revolve around this idea that you know you have i mean look civilization is important but in order to keep people in line you got to put a boot on their throat aristotelians will say that's not that's not true you don't need to uh, we live in political societies and uh, you don't have to coerce people to get them to think your way and i think this is a, i was actually listening to a, a very popular talk show yesterday and there was a lefty on there Who'd said, oh, like, I don't believe in violence. Violence doesn't work. Um, and I think in some ways that's true. Violence does turn people off. So it's, it's is the boot on the throat effective? And he was, he was criticizing uh, all the things that are going on now and the violence on both sides. He was actually saying, you know, there's violence on both sides. Even though he did say at one point, you know, he th- thinks that lefties should punch people in the face at times. Uh, but... He was saying that violence never works. It's, it's, much, it's much more problematic in terms of image than just simply nonviolent response to things. And I think you know, the libertarians have, have gotten this right when they say, look, peace is the essence of protest in so many ways. And what we talk about are peaceful solutions to major problems, incompatible things. If there is an incompatible thing, why do you want to force somebody at the barrel of a gun or a boot on their throat to do what you want? Why not just let them go their own way and do what they want and you do what you want in your own society with like-minded people? And that is the essence of decentralization. That is the essence of a heterogeneous society in the way the founding generation designed the United States Constitution, or the Constitution, I should say, for the United States. You had incompatible things that in many ways needed the flexibility to deal with the culture and traditions of their areas on their own. New England had its own culture. The South had its own culture. The Mid-Atlantic states had their own culture. And those things needed to develop on their own, in their own way, in their own local communities. The only time they needed to have a common goal was if it was uh, defense or general commerce. In other words, having a free trade zone between the, between the states, that was it. But everything else needed to be left to the states because you had culture that had to be maintained. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to actually read a little bit of a chapter in a book by the late Mel Bradford. Now, maybe you're um, you know, listening to this and you've never heard of Mel Bradford before. You, you might have, but he's, he's not a, a household name. Um, well, for many people you know, outside of libertarian movement, Murray Rothbard is not a household name, but Mel Bradford and Murray Rothbard had a lot in common. Now, Mel Bradford was not a libertarian. Mel Bradford was a traditionalist. And so I don't like these terms, and I've done a podcast on that before, you know, about tradition and, and a libertarian conservative. I don't like those labels. I think in, in so many ways what we are dealing with here and what we are are traditionalists, and it's that American tradition that we're trying to maintain. As a, as a right libertarian or as a paleoconservative, these labels, we're trying to maintain tradition. The American tradition of decentralization, freedom, liberty, these type of things, property, these are the things that we're trying to maintain. And the ability to be with like-minded people in your own cultural continuity. I mean, these, these are things that we want. And it's for everyone. I mean, you know, we're not trying to force people to be in our community. We just want to be in our own community. You go be in your community and you live the way you want to live. Just leave us alone. 
But community is important. I think, you know, when Jeff Deist made that talk at the Mises University, they got so many people upset. <gasps> oh my gosh, he's talking about community. Uh, this is what he was getting at. That at the core, even when you talk about, and Ron Paul has said this, it's nice to be with people that think like you. It makes for a much more happy society. Why do you want to be around people that don't think like you? So you can be miserable all the time? No. Who wants that? So when you think about these things, it all comes down to being around people that think like you. Uh, and being in an area that's like you. So that is maintaining tradition. And you're not ripping up the fences then. You're not going into an area, you move to an area and say, I don't like the culture here, so I'm going to go rip up their fences. And I'm going to make it the way I want. Because I want to live like this. And you're going to make, you're going to live like me. That's Hobbesian. That's Hobbesian. What we really need are Aristotelians. So Mel Bradford was uh, a paleoconservative. I mean, that's what he he was one of the giants of the quote unquote paleoconservatism of the 1970s and 80s. In fact, uh, he probably would have worked for the Reagan administration had Bill Bennett not uh, torpedoed his appointment to the National Endowment for the Humanities. And that would have changed the entire structure of the quote-unquote conservative movement in Washington, D.C. In fact, uh, I was having an, an email exchange with uh, Paul Gottfried, and, and we were talking about um, conservatism. And I said, well, look, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan was the gateway drug to the neoconservatives. And he said, you're exactly right. I worked in that. I saw what happened. I saw how Reagan brought these people in, and it changed, quote-unquote, conservatism in America. This is why you have people like Bill Kristol. The Kristols are not conservatives. They're neoconservatives, and this is why people like that are ingrained in your, quote-unquote, conservative think tanks, uh, your conservative institutions in Washington, D.C. It's because they're attracted to power and what that can bring. And so the Paleos, the Bradfords, weren't. And there were so many of these people, uh, and there was a time that there was they were trying to have their own institutions and do their own things, but they were marginalized, and still are marginalized. Uh, but things like this podcast and the internet have allowed those ideas to flourish in many different ways, uh, and allow them to get out there. Of course, uh, Mises has uh, and Lou Rockwell have been tremendous in using the internet to try to level the playing field and get out there and use that voice. They've been doing it for a long time. I mean, so many other people are doing that now. But Bradford, was tor his, his candidacy was torpedoed, and that was that. Uh, but Bradford was such an important voice in this early uh, paleoconservatism, or at least that split. You know, it wasn't early, but there was a split, and a lot of reasons why. But Murray Rothbard was definitely part of that. I mean, you go back and look at Murray Rothbard's political uh, career, and this is a guy, a New York... Jewish man who voted for the Dixiecrats or support the Dixiecrats in 1948. It goes to show you that uh, not everything is as it seems when you look at you know <laughs> when you look at politics and uh, when you look at just platitudes uh, and and what people say about other people. You find that there's a lot of complexity and gray areas and things, and what you might think is true is not. Uh, but Rothbard uh, supported Neat Rothbard, loved John C. Calhoun for various reasons. He loved the South for various reasons. Uh, and 
I think when you look in the Southern tradition, and when you look at that, I mean, again, it's tradition that Rothbard is talking about there. It's this idea of tradition. And so I want to read you a passage from this, uh, uh, this book, Remembering Who We Are, by Mel Bradford. It's a wonderful little collection of essays. Uh, and for those of you that do not know Mel Bradford, um, this is a good, uh, a good uh, book, um, but it's maybe not your place to start with Mel Bradford. Mel was better known for his work on the founding generation and so um, and the Constitution. So uh, I would look at maybe his original intentions, which is a wonderful little book on the Constitution, or his uh, founding fathers, which is the biography of the men who served in the Philadelphia Convention. A little brief biographies. It's really good, and I think that's a nice introduction to Mel Bradford. But he actually was a literature professor. Uh, and you know, part of that Southern agrarian tradition, uh, he he taught at the University of Dallas, and uh, was uh, you know a, a huge man, a mountain of a man, wore a, wore a cowboy hat all the time, and uh, off, often had his six shooters on his hip. Uh, he was he was a, an an interesting character. I never personally met him. He died uh, in 1994, I believe, and. Uh, so before I was really very actively involved in what I'm doing now. But uh, my advisor in, in graduate school, Clyde Wilson, was very good friends with Mel Bradford. And so they <clears throat> they definitely had a lot in common. But uh, a lot of his uh, books, uh, collections of his essays, are also very good. Uh, and he, he wrote a lot about the South and, and uh, Southern history. Uh, he was interested, of course, in the Southern founding and uh, people that are not very well known. But this... This book, Remembering Who We Are, is very good if you want to look at much more, a much more philosophical stance for Bradford, a historical perspective on why he thinks the way he does. And there's one chapter in it entitled, Thinking Within the Inheritance, A Dedication. And I want to read the first couple of paragraphs, because these paragraphs, I think, define traditionalists and what we're doing and, and kind of connecting the dots and explaining why so many people want to keep monuments, for example. Uh, you know, why is this, there's this, this defense of these monuments and the outside attacks and, and what that's saying and, and, and how they're wrong. So let me read these, these couple of paragraphs. They're, they're really good. And so just humor me for this for a second. The dedications of new public buildings like the observations of anniversaries of great moments in our national, state, and local history, or the raising of monuments to the memory of heroic figures, are celebrations of a continuity sustained against the inevitable hazards of change and blind chance, the forces which make for anonymity and oblivion. And particularly is the case, this, is this the case when the new building is a library, I know what such institutions give to a community, how they enrich and unify its civic life. From the years when, while in college, I worked part-time in a municipal library at Norman, Oklahoma. To build a library is a fine way for a town to say to the world and to itself, this is a civilized place. The citizens whose corporate will is expressed within these walls are people rooted in something durable, who came from somewhere and who brought with them to their present situation a respect for that identity. Now, let me stop there. I haven't read the next paragraph yet, but let me stop there. 
There are there's so much meat in this one paragraph. You got as they say now the, the millennials. You got to unpack it. There's so much meat here. So start from that first part, that first sentence. The dedications of new public buildings, like the observations of anniversaries of great moments in our national, state, and local histories, getting to the think locally, act locally idea. We have these things in our towns, in our communities, because there was a, an observation, an observation of something real and tangible for those people in that area, to remember who they were and who they are. That's why this title of this book is, is wonderful. They're remembering who they are and who they were. It's tangible. Or the raising of monuments to the memory of heroic figures and our celebrations of a continuity sustained against the inevitable hazards of chains and blind chance. And of course, as he says, those, those uh, hazards of chains and blind change and blind chance are the forces which make for anonymity and oblivion. And again, anonymity is the opposite of identity. That's essentially what people want. They want you to be, particularly on the left, the levelers, those that believe in equality with a capital E, equality of condition. They want conformity, anonymity. This is really what they're looking for. Even though they say, you know, we want to be ourselves and express ourselves, what they want is for everyone to be like them, and they're going to force you to do it. It's a, it's a emotional response. They're saying that they feel like they are, again, feel like they are being shunned. And most of this is just a feeling. Nothing's really ever happening to them, but they feel it's there. And so they want to take symbols and rip them down because those symbols to them create a feeling that you don't like me. Even though that's not the case, for the people that, particularly the people that I know, that want to defend symbols and tradition. It's about identity and community and what he, what Bradford says in a minute about these things. But again, a library says to the world, we're civilized. We're civilized. We're a civilized people. And I've already done a podcast on barbarians because I think that gets to the heart of problems and another thing. You know, the people that are doing these things, they're barbarians. And of course, the root of barbarians, the Greeks knew that a barbarian was an uneducated, smelly person. This is it. This is what a barbarian meant. And so these people are barbarians. They're not educated. They're emoting. That's all it is. It's an emotional response. We're emoting. We're using an emoji. We don't like these things. We're emoting. You're going to think like us. We don't care. It just makes us feel bad. You can't, you can't combat, in many ways, emotional responses with, with intellect. Though... We have to figure out a way to do it because emoting against another emotional response is dangerous. It creates violence. And then he goes on. Important to this identity are, of course, the oral memories, the stories of friends and kindred, the Vatic narratives of our own particular blood and land by means of which the fathers, the household gods, are appeased. Think about that sentence. This is exactly what Jeff Deist was saying that got him into so much trouble. He's Bradford is using some terms here that, of course, ideologues have stolen. But I talked about this in the last podcast. You know, it's 
It's uh, hearth and home, kith and kin. It's these things that he's talking about. Identity are the memories. History is the memory of mankind. And eventually I'll... I'll uh, you know, I did a podcast on popular history. What is, what is history? And it's and remember, I, me- I, I mentioned that memory of mankind, the stories of friends and kindred. This is our own particular blood and land, which these household gods, those who we know, are appeased. That monument, that soldier's monument, that tombstone. We may not have known the people personally. But they ha- we do know them, particularly if those stories have been handed down from generation to generation. We know them. We know great-great-grandpa because great-great-grandpa's stories are still with us, or the memory of great-great-grandpa is still with us, so we want to maintain that memory with a monument or a symbol. So for many people, this is a tangible, a real, not emotional response, but intellectual response to connections with other people. And that's where tradition is important. And then he goes on. The Mississippi novelist Stark Young gave lines to the protagonist of his novel So Read the Rose, Hugh McGee speaking to his son as he leaves to wear the gray, which I hope Southerners will always be able to understand. So uh, if, you've, if you've never read Southern literature, you should do it. And, and uh, Stark Young and So Read the Rose. It's a great, great novel. He, and uh, Hugh McGee says this, quote, it's not to our credit to think we began today, and it's not to our glory to think we end today. All through time, we keep coming to the shore like waves. Like waves. You stick to your blood, son. There's a fierceness in blood can bind you up with a long community of life. End quote. A long community of life. You stick to your blood. The people you know. The community you know. The community of life. The place you know. It's defending a place. Defending a people. Those are the things you know. And this is exactly what Bradford was getting to. And then uh, he goes on, he says, but also important framing that old song of me and mine as the written record of our kind in literature, biography, and history, and in the works of opinion and information. The connection between our little world and the other parts of what we mean by civilization. The guarantee that both will survive and what comes after them, even though one generation perishes and another rises to stand in its place. And you think about, uh, you think about that with say, you know, Murray Rothbard, and, and people saying, this is what Murray Rothbard taught me. That's a continuity, a community of people, of like-minded people. When all of us are dust and pushing up daisies, we hope there's a continuity behind us to carry on the things that we believe and we think. The earth does belong to the living, but you would hope that these traditions survive because they were put there for a reason, because of experience. Experience is our only guide. Reason may mislead us. This is what John Dickinson said on the floor of the Philadelphia Convention in 1787. Experience must be our only guide. Reason may mislead us. That is tradition. And Bradford loved that quote, by the way. The written word raises tribal memory and tribal preoccupations to the level of reflection, to their proper place in the steady current of human experience 
as one part of its mysterious pattern. So you accomplish more in building a library than you would in putting up just any kind of building, say a barn or feed store. And so we have libraries now. We have online libraries. We have online depositories of, of, and of things like this, podcasts and the spoken word, the written word, the oral traditions. So it's connecting with people behind us. And this is why I've always been interested in what I, what I do, you know, in these kind of things. It's connecting with people behind us. It's connecting with the tradition, connecting with the past. This American tradition of decentralization, it's allowing people to live peacefully together and that is the important part of it. People would say decentralization can produce hostility and conflict. No, it will produce people saying, you live your way, we live our way, and that's what we're going to do. And these monuments and symbols and all the things, all throughout the United States, I don't care what monument it is, whether it's in New England to a group of Union soldiers, or in the South to a group of Confederate soldiers, or a monument dedicated to a political leader in some part of the West, this is a this is it's there because of continuity, because of tradition, because of that place speaking to future generations. These are our people, not to, to prove that one is better than the other, but to remember in a traditional sense, to remember who we are. To remember grandpa, great grandpa, great great grandpa, great 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 grandpa, and great grandma and great 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 grandma. It's those things, it's the old traditions, it's a people. It's keeping those things together, and we do a very poor job of that in society today, I think, more than anything else. And that's where the left, those that want to tear all these things out, rip up the fences, there's no continuity in that. It's just whatever is new, they're going to rip it out. They're going to rip out whatever's old because whatever's new is trendy and popular. And that is just, it's destructive. And not only that, it creates the problems that Bradford talked about. And so this is why, this is how we need to connect with people and say, well, you have your own traditions. You should keep those things. And of course, some people say, I don't like traditions at all. I just want to be, and, but what happens, what happens when you're older and you want to hang on to what you're leaving behind? That becomes a tradition. <laughs> so they do like them. It's just that they don't like if something pushes on them from somewhere else that uh, they don't think is, uh, is valuable to them. Well, then, Go and have your own community. This is where decentralization works. Think locally, act locally works. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.